HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. You're listening to Season 2 of Fields, the podcast, with Melissa Metric, Wythe Marshall, and Allie Wist. On Fields, we're bringing you the stories of people who are working in the world of urban agriculture— For money, for fun, for art, for justice, to feed the hungry, to green the city, or to uncover its history. In each episode of Fields, we'll delve into one kind of food that's grown in cities, one technology used to grow food, or one project that teaches us something about our relationship to farming and urban environments. Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer today. You don't need to be a farmer to enjoy this podcast, or even a foodie. We're going to tell fascinating stories and break down the realities and possible futures of urban farming to their elements, examining each in turn. Thank you so much for listening. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Fields Podcast. Uh, This is Melissa Metric, um, one of the co-hosts of Fields, and I'm here with... Allie Wist. And Wythe Marshall. Thank you. Um, and today we will be talking to Greg Peterson, who's the founder of the Urban Farm um, in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, Greg also has a podcast. And Greg, could you tell us the name of your podcast, please? It is the Urban Farm Podcast. Been doing it about uh, six years now. Great. Um, and we're really excited to talk to um, Greg Peterson today about his work, um, specifically um, on the urban farm, specifically about his podcast, and also a main focus of his, which is permaculture. Um, so Greg, can you please kind of give, give us like a quick introduction of your work, of the urban farm, of your podcast. I know that's going to be hard for a quick introduction, but... (laughs) Right, how many hours do you have? Right. (laughs) So um, let's go back to the beginning for me, because I often get asked, how on earth did I come up with this? Yes, we would love that. Yeah, and it really goes back to, I don't know if you believe in previous lives, but it 
I was born into this life with this interest. Um, in 1974, I was in the eighth grade. I wrote a paper on how we were overfishing the oceans. In 1981, I designed something on paper that we would now call a regenerative fish farm, a fish farm that just generates it regenerates itself. In 1991, I discovered permaculture, which I like to call the art and science of working with nature. And then in 2001, I went back to school to get my master's, my bachelor's and master's degree at Arizona State University. And I had to write a vision for my life for an undergraduate class. And what came out of that was the roadmap for the urban farm. The urban farm is where I live. It's a third of an acre right in the middle of Phoenix. If you stood on my roof and looked 50 miles in all direction, you could see houses if you could see that far. So it is urban to the max. And what I've done is I've taken this 80 foot by 160 foot property and I've turned it into what we now call an old growth food forest. And basically what that means is that food just grows. You know, I plant heirloom and open pollinated seeds and I let them go to seed and the carrots come back year after year after year. The basil, the oregano, the nasturtiums, the lettuce, the kale, all of these things just come back year after year after year without me doing anything except nurturing the soil. And for me, it's been a lifelong process of discovery, number one, and it's led me to a place of I'm the person on the planet responsible for transforming our global food system, and that's what gets me up in the morning, and Really, my desire is to light people up about where their food comes from and how to grow their own. So that's kind of my what I do in a nutshell. Yeah, it's really amazing to hear about that because it feels pretty divergent from how a lot of folks grow food, even in their own gardens, and and how people on an individual level typically encounter growing a la landscaping, which is just very uh, more controlled, didactic, and it doesn't have this sort of like regenerative, um, you know, this kind of, like you said, resurgent, self-generating <laughs> yearly yeah. um, growth. Exactly. Well, and and none of our landscapes, especially in the United States, are anywhere close to being regenerative. Regenerative basically means, and I learned this in permaculture 30 years ago, it regenerates itself. You know, human systems, so so on the planet, I've looked for the past 30 years, there's humans and there's nature. Humans create one particular kind of, of asset. Humans' assets are degenerative. They break down over time. They take more time, more money, more energy. I challenge anybody out there. I've been looking for, like I said, 30 years to find a regenerative human system. There isn't one out there. Regenerative lives in nature and natural systems. Now, somebody could say, well, people regenerate themselves. You're right. But people aren't ultimately from the human construct. They're from nature. So that's nature doing what nature does. So in nature, what we get are these systems that regenerate themselves over and over again. And what happens, and I'll ask Melissa and Allie this, what happens to a system, if it, of a, na- a natural system, if it doesn't regenerate itself? It will no longer be around. 
<laughs> exactly. So when you start to think about the human condition, the what we've stuck ourselves with, that every single human system that we've put in place on this planet is de- degenerative, that's like a, hmm, we got a problem. This is what goes through my mind every day. It's a real moment of pause when you see the lack of symbiosis that we tend to integrate or how little we integrate ourselves into those systems. And I think um, actually reducing those binaries between the human made designs and the natural designs is sort of where it seems your work is and where we could be headed. So Greg, how did you get into permaculture? Like, how did you, um, cause it's very interesting, this idea of, um, giving up that control, right? Like when a lot of people practice gardening or farming, there is a sense of control of, I have to plant these seeds every year. I have to, you know, prepare the bed and make it nice for these seeds. I have to plant these specific varieties. I have to add these certain amendments and all these other things or fertilizers or pesticides. Um, and, and it almost seems like sometimes there isn't this trust in nature that it will regenerate itself, like that you can just let that carrot go to flower, which most, which a lot of people don't even know that carrots flower, let alone, you know, produce their own seed. Um, so, so how did you get to this almost like aha moment of like, um, like I remember reading um, the One Straw Revolution by uh, Fukuomo and, uh, and and just how he calls it like a lazy farmer or lazy gardener, right? Like, so this idea, this philosophy of stepping back and this idea of kind of trusting nature. So, so how did you, how did you get into that? So remember my, I was born in 61 I don't know what happened in 71. I learned a lot in 81 about regenerative design, which is what we would call it now. But when I got to 1991, and I, so I remember this moment in spades. I walked to the mailbox. This was the, probably the summer of 1991. And I pull this postcard out of the mailbox and it's talking about this thing called permaculture. Now, I have no idea where it came from. I have no idea how that postcard came to me. And it was talking about a permaculture design course. A permaculture design course is a 72-hour deep dive into what permaculture is. And I remember running into the house. I was married at the time to Michelle. And I said, Michelle, I'm doing this course. You want to do it with me? So we actually did it together. And what I remember thinking throughout that entire course was, oh, my gosh, there is something that lives on the planet is the, that is the way that I think. So permaculture is so integrated in the way that I've always thought my entire life, back to when I was at least in my teens, that for me, it was just like, oh, of course, this is the way it is. So that's the best answer I can give you. It was just there, and it was what I was supposed to be doing. Sometimes it's a curse. Most of the time, it's a gift. So, and then, so if we fast forward, I did my first permaculture design course in 1991, um, and I have journals going back that far. And one of my journals has this, this thing I wrote, this quote, and it goes like this. 
Our downfall as a species is that we're arrogant enough to think that we can control Mother Nature and stupid enough to think it's our job. So for me, nature has always been the controlling factor in my life, whereas I think for most human beings, they think their humanness or human beingness is a major control of their in their life. And I don't know how much sense that made, but I just made it up just as now, just now. So (laughs) no, it definitely makes sense in terms of our perspective and kind of where we come from and how we view growing and how we view agriculture and how most people encounter it. Those of us who do not have such uh, kind of amazing visions that we're carrying with us. Um, And I'm kind of curious how from that moment you came to the actual physical farm itself that you have now, like if you can set the scene a little bit as to where it is, if it's in a suburban area, what what's grown in the region generally versus what you have growing and, you know. Great. Um, So, again, my house is right in the middle of Phoenix. So it is urban, as urban as you can get. And, um, you know, I grow a lot of vegetables here. I grow a lot of fruit trees. One of my favorite things to plant is a fruit tree. Why? Because you plant it once and it makes food for decades or forever. I have two citrus trees in my backyard that were planted in the 1920s. They're approaching 100 years old and they still make fruit. One of the things I discovered maybe 15 or 20 years ago is this whole notion of lack, not having enough. And I have come to the conclusion that the only place that lack lives is between our ears. Lack is a human condition because when I look at the abundance that comes out of my yard, there is something to eat every day. There is a meal every day in my yard. And if we got really serious about harvesting, there's probably 10 or 20 or 50 meals to eat in my yard every day. Every day. In fact, I was out getting a, a bed ready to plant with a young woofer. Uh, you guys know that acronym WWOOF, Willing Workers on Organic Farm. He was he's here volunteering. He lives in Phoenix and is here volunteering. And so we're prepping a bed. And this time of year, the sweet potatoes start dying back so that we can plant winter crops where the sweet potatoes grow and and protect this the soil in the summertime. And all of a sudden he goes, whoa, Greg, check this out. And he pulls out a sweet potato that was literally sitting on the ground. It was rooted a little bit in the ground that was probably a pound. And so that goes back to the old growth food forestness of the space. I, you know, the infrastructure that I've put in place includes... Uh, Jerusalem artichokes. It includes sweet potatoes. It includes about 40 fruit trees. It includes um, any herb and vegetable that you can imagine. Uh, you know, it's it, there's just stuff. And I manage it in many ways like the forest gets managed. Leave it alone. You know, in my front yard, now in, to a certain extent in my front yard, I have to keep it up because my bachelor's and master's are both in urban planning. My master's degree is in urban and environmental planning because back when I was getting my master's degree in 2004, the closest thing I could get to food systems uh, study was in an urban planning, an urban and environmental planning degree. And so I spent a lot of time during that degree space 
really studying the food systems on our planet. And I've come to the conclusion that um, we have a very, very, very broken food system. It delivers food that was picked early. It's not nutrient dense. Uh, it uh, loses nutrients as it travels. There is a carbon impact for harvesting and picking fruit, especially when you're shipping it from continent to continent. Uh, and um, the food system on our planet is tenuous. We have, and there's some content out there, out there that I found about 15 years ago. We have about a three-day supply of food in any grocery store. And what I say is we actually have a three-hour supply because the moment people get a whiff that there's going to be a food shortage or a toilet paper shortage, they clear the grocery store shelves. And we saw that at least twice in 2020. We saw it with the pandemic and we saw it with the storms in Texas. And so what I am a big proponent of is figuring out how to grow our own food and where our food comes from, because I promise you, nobody in the end is going to be there to grow food for us except us. And that brings me to that brings me to the we need to grow food in the cities. Yes. So so Greg, do you think that it's actually possible for individuals to grow enough food for themselves and for their community within urban areas thinking about land constraints and contamination of soil and also this larger kind of picture of the crops that need more space, such as grains, right? So what are, what are your thoughts on that? Yes, absolutely. I believe that it's possible. In fact, I just got done uh, interviewing Bill McDorman from Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance, and he grows 100 square foot plots. So that's 10 by 10 of grains, and in 100 square foot plot, he can grow enough grain for seven loaves of bread. It's in 100 square feet. So in 400 square feet, he can grow enough grain for a year's worth of loaves of bread for himself. And the systems that we need to have in place to grow food in cities are already here. They're already here. People are already growing stupid things like grass and trees that don't make fruit and all kinds of plants that take monthly nurturing, mowing. Grass is, don't even get me started on grass. That is a ludicrous thing to be growing. It is really the scourge of our... It really is. It, people spend more money, more time and more chemicals on growing grass than any other crop in the world. And that's a piece of data from a couple of years ago that I, and I can't remember where I got it, but it was, they had actually done a study and found that we spend more money on growing grass in our culture than anything. And I live in a neighborhood with houses that are on quarter acre to one acre pieces of dirt and mostly there's 24 houses on my on my street and mostly they grow grass and things you can't eat 
And that makes no sense to me. I run my uh, urban farm fruit tree program, which we do. I've been doing it now for 22 years. We teach people how to grow fruit trees in the desert. It's very different than growing fruit trees anywhere else. And we teach people how to grow fruit trees in the desert. And we have had, especially in the past couple of years, a huge increase in people's interest around growing fruit trees. And so what I've done over the past 20 years is I've given most every neighbor on my street a free fruit tree. So there are more fruit trees growing on my street because I've given them to them than in most areas. But actually, let me let me step back here. So when I went back to college, I went back to college late. I was 40. I was getting my bachelor's and master's degree. And I had just run a tech company for about 15 years that I started in 1984. And uh, I was retiring out of that. I had to get out of tech because it didn't support who I was in the world. It didn't support my heart in the world. And um, one of the things that I did, so remember, I have a plot of land that's 80 feet by 120 feet. And what I did is I grew food in my front and backyard, and I harvested every week, and I went to a local farmer's market. You Anybody can get a booth at a local farmer's market. It is super simple. They're even now have community booths. So if you just have one or two things that you've grown, go find a community booth at a farmer's market and sell it. And they will sell it for you. I was making two to $400 a week at the local farmer's market. And it took me, let's call it eight hours a week is what I was spending. So I was getting to garden. I was growing food. I was wake up early Wednesday morning, like four in the morning on Wednesday morning, I would go out and I would harvest what I, what I needed to take to the market. I went to the market. I got to interact with all kinds of people and I sold what I sold. And then anything that I had left over, I had a restaurant that I just went and saw Susan and I said, here, Susan, here's what I have left over. And she bought me lunch. So back to your question, is it possible? It's absolutely possible. If you're a stay at home mom or dad, if you're a high school student, if you're a grade school student with a mom or a dad that really is interested in this, take a hundred square foot that's 10 by 10. That's all. And grow food in it. And if you don't want to go to a farmer's market, find a local chef. Local chefs love local food. Find out what they want you to grow. You could grow basil. You could grow herbs and sell it to them. Well, I was just going to say we found out during... We definitely found out during the pandemic that there can be more interplay between restaurants, urban farms, and individual consumers. And there was kind of this beautiful local ecosystem that evolved where if farms had a surplus because restaurants were closed, individuals could purchase it. They could also work with their local chef to use up things. And I think we really just aren't used to leaning into our local food economies in that way. We've sort of view restaurants as businesses that are over there, farms are removed from our lives and getting reintegrated into those like personalized networks is a really cool opportunity, I think. Right. And us being so disconnected from our food is a big piece of that too. Because how long can you go without eating food? Yeah, not very long at all. Not very long at all. Exactly. Yeah. 
And and also during the pandemic, it was really interesting. I mean, we're still in the pandemic, but during quarantine, how much um, folks who grew, already grew in urban areas, especially if you had a business, um, how that was very tricky when restaurants shut down because so many urban farms grew for restaurants. Um, one of my, in my previous life, that's what I did. <laughs> I grew for a restaurant. I, 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 was, a, I was a restaurant gardener um, on, the, on the premises. But, um, but it's also interesting, just this idea. And, and some of the things that you're talking about, about Greg, um, really also makes me think about um, the supply chain and also, you know, this idea of localized food, um, but also when, you know, these certain crises happen or whatever, how our supply chain really gets affected. And, you know, maybe that's why we only have, you know, three days of food or three hours of food or whatever because of that supply chain. And, um, you know, urban farmers, especially how much they had to pivot during um, quarantine because all of the sudden half of their sales or three quarters of their sales, which were restaurants or, you know, supermarkets or something like that, they didn't have anymore. Um, so that was interesting in this localized sense, how maybe the supply, you know, the, in, in the sense of um, how easier it is to kind of pivot a little bit than in our larger global food system. Like we're, we're, we're starting to figure that out now also with like all of these things that we're not able to get because of these echoes of um, quarantine and all of these other things. Wife, do you want to add anything to this? Sorry, I know I'm, I'm calling you out, but. No, no, that's great. I just didn't want to cut off a good conversation. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think I always am curious how to the degree people changed operations in urban uh, farms and gardens during COVID or how, you know, did you, um, I'm guessing you somehow, you know, reacted in your community. And I'm just curious to hear, you know, how COVID particularly might've impacted uh, the urban farm. Um, but I'm agreeing with, with everything. And I, I, have, I have some other follow-up questions, but that's one that just jumps to mind, um, you know, about some of these, these topics. Yay. Well, remember what I have here is an old growth food forest. So I don't have long rows of anything growing. I have all kinds of, you know, maybe there's a hundred different things growing in my yard that I can go harvest. So the urban farm is actually a space that's just a wild farm that you go out and harvest. So I'm not actually, back when, 20 years ago when I was in college, I was harvesting food and taking it to restaurants and farmer's markets. I don't do that anymore. What I do though is educate. I educate through my podcast. I educate through Urban Farm U. We have online classes. We have monthly seed gardening chats, fruit tree chats. We do all kinds of education. And one of the things that I noticed with, with COVID for us is the tremendous amount of people that all of a sudden became interested in growing their own food. We, as COVID was coming on uh, in 2020, um, I'm, I'm self-employed. I've been self-employed since I was 15 years old. I've had 30 different businesses. I've had uh, two of them that lasted more than 20 years. I've had a bunch of those 30 that just didn't last at all. And so I'm really good at this pivot. It's like, all right, what's coming? What are we going to do? And on March 10th of 2020, I said to my team, all right, we have dozens of classes that we've pre-recorded. We've got dozens of people that we can bring on and have them offer classes. 
So what we did in the pivot is by uh, by the 15th of March, so March 15th, 2020, we started a 30 days of gardening classes online. We just put it out there. We said, we're going to do a gardening class a day. It's going to be free. you know. And so we put out a press release. We got the information out about that. We had over 20,000 people sign up for our free, for our free, we call them Victory Garden series of classes. And we did 62 classes over 90 days. The first two weeks was hard because I was doing a class. I was hosting some of the classes I taught. I was hosting some of the class. I was hosting all the classes. I was teaching some of them and seven days a week was too much. So then after two weeks, we went to five days a week. And after two months, we went to three days a week. And the, the interest there was staggering. And then with my fruit tree program, what we do with the fruit tree program is I, te- I give free classes for people on how to grow fruit trees in the desert. It's very different than growing anyplace else. And then they can buy fruit trees from us. And we were up 40% in sales in 2020 on fruit trees. We sold out basically of everything that we had in, you know, in like the first six weeks of our program, which is unheard of, is absolutely unheard of. So that is what I, what the urban farm experienced, Wythe. That's great. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. It's just kind of fascinating to hear that sort of increased interest. And also in a place like Arizona, where a lot of times what you hear about in the media when you think of agriculture and growing food in relationship to Arizona is that there's a drought, there's not enough water. And so a lot of people are used to that narrative. And I'm really curious, you said certain fruit trees that are really great for the climate and just what those are and kind of the challenges that you face in Phoenix. So let's talk about the... uh canary in the coal mine. We're in a mega drought in the desert Southwest, in California, in Nevada, in New Mexico, in Colorado, in Utah, we're in a mega drought that nobody seems to be all that concerned about. I'm sounding the alarm over here. We're in a mega drought. And I actually, from my permaculture friends in Tucson, they, you know, I get a little bit of blowback. Why are you selling fruit trees in the desert? Because fruit trees are high water plants, right? So, and I've had to look at that a lot. And my contention is that if we're bringing in citrus from Florida, if we're bringing in peaches from Peru, if we're bringing in food from, you know, 1,500 miles away, the environmental impact of that is a whole lot greater. Plus the environmental impact of the plastic that they're packing this stuff in is a whole lot greater than, 
using water in the desert to grow fruit trees. Now, I'm not talking about putting a hundred fruit trees around your property. I'm talking about planting five fruit trees strategically around your house that will help feed your family, that will use rainwater harvesting. You know, I get the question a lot, well, why would I bother harvesting rain? Well, for every thousand for every thousand square feet of harvest space and every inch of rain, we get 600 gallons of water. I had one rain event in 2014 here at the Urban Farm that 29,800 gallons of water came down on the property. That's a lot of water. And so what we do in rainwater harvesting is we, we direct that water out into our landscape to the most water-hungry plants. So I encourage water harvesting, rainwater harvesting. I encourage gray water harvesting, which is legal in the state of Arizona. Um, And uh, really getting conscious about our food. Plus, any food that you grow is going to be nutritionally more dense and healthier for you if you're growing it in your yard. So that's my argument to why grow, why water fruit trees in the desert. Now, Melissa, you had mentioned uh, toxic soils. It is my contention that you can't go anywhere in this planet. Most recently in in, uh, Antarctica, they found microplastics in frozen in ice. You can't go anywhere on this planet without there being pollution. So if you're concerned about a particular kind of pollutant in your soil, have it tested. Um, and you can do raised bed gardens, and you can do hydroponics, and you can do aquaponics, and you can do container farms, and you can do... There is a myriad... My friend Jen Freimark, who started Gotham Greens in New York City, she and I went to Arizona State University together in 2001 through 2004. She uses tops of buildings. You know, so... Yes, we need to be concerned about water and hydroponics and aquaponics and aeroponics uses 90% water. There's drip irrigation called drip tape, which is an amazing way to use a lot less water. It's a, it's a system, drip tape is a system by farmers that um, uses like 90% water and it delivers water to exactly where you need it. So there are so many technologies and, um, you know, figure it out front and backyard. You can grow enough food for your neighbors. Um, Greg, you mentioned, um, you know, soilless growing like hydroponics and aquaponics and aeroponics and those types of things. Would you recommend that specifically for arid regions because of its recycling of water and water use and that type of thing? Um, here's what I would recommend. I would recommend that somebody do what lights up their heart. Now, aquaponics, hydroponics, aeroponics, uh, container, you know, container farms. Yes. They use 90% water. Is it a good idea? It's absolutely a great idea. Yeah. And I really appreciated the comment about, um, you know, we found, microplastics in the farthest reaches of the planet. And so while it, when encountering toxic soils, you do need to test it and investigate bioremediation where it's relevant. We also in some way have to accept 
the toxicity that we live within and find ways to work within it and grow food anyways and move forward, you know, for only it's sort of this eco anxiety and eco paralysis that can occur when we've heard all these stories of toxicity. And I think you make the point that, you know, there's a way to move forward with that and test your soil, remediate, find a way to kind of grow within that. Well, and, you know, we're going to have to. I have this theory that I developed about a decade ago, and it goes like this. It's not a happy theory. My mom, who passed away this year at the age of 85, lived in a really polluted world for maybe 25% of her life. And so toward the end of her life, when she was 82, 83, 84, 85, she started developing some dis-ease that, you know, joint pain and the kinds of things that come from living in a polluted world. Me, on the other hand, I've lived in a really polluted world for about half of my life. I'm 60 years old now. And what I've started to notice is that the same things that she was dealing with at the end of her life, health-wise, I'm starting to have to deal with now 25 years younger than she is. My niece and nephew, they're in their early 20s. They've lived in a really polluted world their entire life. And what we're starting to see is the level of dis-ease and disease is growing exponentially. It is said that my parents will have lived, will be the generation that lived the longest. Boomers, and I'm at the very end of the boomers, will live the longest Everybody else, because the level of pollution and the level of malnutrition out there, I mean, people can have enough food in their stomach, but they can still suffer from malnutrition. You know, if they're eating at fast food restaurants and eating this food that is really manufactured. So we have to, as a culture, learn to grow our own food, learn what healthy food is, figure out our local food system. We have a a whole model that I've developed called the local food economy model that looks at all of the parts of a local system. And in order to have a healthy, vibrant local food system, you need to have all these parts in place. Yeah. And I think, I think something you're raising though, is it's important to contextualize that, you know, in, in terms of food, um, it's tied to this idea of, of a pristine in, environment that no longer exists. Like the apocalypse has already happened and we, we live in a sort of post-apocalyptic scenario that's very uneven. So it's very different for those of us, um, you know, fortunate enough to live in relatively less polluted areas. Uh, and, I, and I think, you know, I'd push back from a historical perspective. I mean, it was certainly worse to live in an industrializing city a hundred years ago than it is to live in a post-industrial one now by any measure. But I think the, obviously the burdens have shifted around and there's just new issues. So we don't really know the long-term effect of phthalates and microplastics and all these things. Whereas we know that, okay, eating a lot of lead was bad. Uh, but, and of course there's still communities, um, often that eat the same kinds of communities who are suffering from, you know, lack of, of lead abatement and whatnot. So it's, it's, it's like we have the old apocalypses plus new ones. And at this point, it's very um, uneven, but still the whole planet, to, to your point about Antarctica, has been sort of degraded. And so arable land has been degraded. Traditional breadbasket regions are facing um, all kinds of, you know, whether it's uh, super weed resistance, um, just all kinds of, of problems. Look at the impact of COVID on farm labor. So you sort of have these unevenly applied sloshing around apocalypses, one on top of the next. And I think to your point, 
it's you have to make do and you have to look at what's around. And and I always think back to uh, Melissa having me read um, uh, One Straw Revolution and this idea of, of marginal land. It's a book. It's not about cities per se, but it's about sort of a small marginal piece of land and what could you grow on it in a food forest, essentially, and one that doesn't require anything particularly special or fancy other than sort of determination to grow food with that microclimate. Um, so I, I, th- I take your point that there, a lot of what you're doing is just looking around at the resources in your particular neck of the woods and developing them. And what, what I think is striking is the time involved, that it's over 20 years you have this great success and you can teach people. Um, and that maybe that's what it takes is communities, e- each community looking at their patch of land in a city or not in a city and figuring out what they can grow and trying to be smarter about it and just realizing like, yeah, it's, it's not going to be perfect. You're not going to, there is no pastoral retreat. You know, maybe if you're extremely rich, you, you, even then, I mean, you're, it's, it's not going to, there isn't a lot of um, original first nature left to go sort of exploit or escape to. And I think that realize it's like, it doesn't have to be a cause for anxiety to Ali's point. It can be a cause for sort of um, accepting something and acting. Exactly. Exactly. So I just want to reflect on that because I, I, I think that conversation is really important and, and it comes up a lot in our discussions, but it's, we, we don't always mark it out, you know, in its entirety. Well, I, I suffer from climate grief. It's, it's a real thing for me. It's something that's on my mind every day. I don't have kids. I chose not to have kids because in the 70s, I saw how we were treating the planet and I saw what was coming. So I didn't want to bring any kids into that. And for that, for, for you, Melissa and Allie and Wythe, um, I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry that we as a culture, we as the 60s and 70s generation didn't do more. Um, and this is something that's on my mind every day. Um, to, to finish up my, um, my theory about my mom and myself and now my nephew, uh, my nephew and niece, uh, my nephew actually ended up with celiac disease. And celiac disease has uh, the the expansion of celiac disease in the early aughts in 99, 2000, 2001 uh, can be directly connected to the expansion of genetically modified corn and genetically modified BT in corn um, that is doing some damage in people's guts. And... uh, you know, it's, it's, this is just what we need to start paying attention to this at a new and different level. And, uh, for, for my generation's part, I'm really sorry that we didn't do more and what we can do now is move forward. And I do think that the sort of cultural and emotional connections we have to food as we look forward are important to tie in. I think when we talk about food futures and climate adaptations, a lot of time we get mired in very important research, uh, but research and kind of really objective and Western data and papers and, and um, you know, while hybridized crops and some of these more technological modifications will be important, we have to remember that our emotional and cultural engagement with food is also a part of this transition and moving forward and accepting a level of grief, of involvement, um, and even community ritual tradition, creativity as a part of the way we engage with it, in addition to some of the other sort of scientific adaptations that we come up with. Yeah, and political ones, because, you know, COP26, as we record this, is wrapping up, and it's it's really done nothing 
much at all, but it's specifically done nothing about agriculture. There's been very little discussion of agriculture. And um, this is a huge failing. And, and I think it's, it's similar to Ali, what you're saying, like, I, you know, I'm more um, amenable, you know, studying biotechnology to the idea that genetic engineering has a role in, in all kinds of solutions. But I think it's more the mentality. It's the idea that, that w- the only way forward is through techno fixes. The only way governmentally is to kind of get together and agree on mealy-mouthed um, ideas to revisit uh, uh, what is the, the Times is reporting, uh, some of the specific wording, you know, revisit and strengthen your plans. You know, what does that mean? I mean, it, it sort of is, is absolutely meaningless. So I think this is part of the same um, neoliberalism as such that we've seen not address a lot of fundamental issues in food and ag and more broadly, you know, the environment. So I, I definitely take um, that point of of actually trying to act in your community seems like a big theme in this season that, that we've run into. And, and it's inspiring to talk to, to practitioners. Yeah. And Greg, I know that we're going to have to um, wrap up soon, but but on this kind of note of, you know, things that are here, things that are coming, especially when it comes to climate change and adaptation, um, you know, how have you been kind of dealing with that on your land and and also with this like permaculture um uh, I wouldn't go as far as, well, well, it is a permaculture technique, but also like this permaculture, almost like ph- philosophy. So, so in, you know, what, what would you say to our listeners in the sense of, you know, what is coming ahead and, and, and just, and what is here now, honestly. Um, and, you know, just your thoughts on that and how you deal with that with, with your space and your land, and also being in an urban area? So my space and my land is a known commodity here in Phoenix. I've opened it up for over 20 years as the urban farm. People know the urban farm. It is, uh, I, I open it up four to three or four times a year for tours. It is an educational space. And that really is what I've just, my big push is my podcast and uh, Urban Farm U, where we have all kinds of courses and is to get people engaged at that in at that level. Um, I do want to uh, address the uh, the is the COP COP conference COP twenty six conference. Um, I pretty much don't pay attention to that because uh, I am a grassroots worker. I have found that moving m- moving mountains at a grassroots level is so much easier than moving mountains. At a governmental level, so I pay—I don't pay attention to that. But um, one of the speakers was speaking, and they were in the news the other day. And what I noticed in back of them was the logo, and it said the UnClimate Conference. It didn't say the United Nations Climate Conference. It said the UnClimate Conference. And when you look up the prefix "un," "un." Basically, it means shirts not getting done. And what we've seen with these conferences is shirt doesn't get done. People don't move this stuff forward. And, you know, for me, it's just a blah, 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 blah. We need to. Here's the thing. The government's not going to be there to save our butt. We have to do what we can do 
around flooding, around climate change, around food security. This is our job at a neighborhood level to start to build out systems so that we are there for ourselves when things happen. Because what we've seen over the past five years is going to escalate greatly over the next 20. I know this because I've studied something called carrying capacity. Carrying capacity is the capacity for an, uh, uh, an ecosystem to manage the amount of biological waste, and I'm, and I'm boiling this down greatly, but to manage the amount of biological waste that is in it. We have exceeded the carrying capacity of the planet, and that is what is driving, that is one of the big drivers of climate change. There's too much pollution, there's too much poop, there's too much stuff that the environment can't manage. So what we have coming down the pike is a tidal wave, and this is the climate grief that I deal with on a daily basis, is a tidal wave of issues and things that we need to be paying attention to now as communities to address. Yeah, and I think, and we we can talk about this more, or you know, maybe that's another episode we'll have to tape with you. But you know, because because this came up before, and, and with a, with another you know similar different geography, but but somebody's doing great work. But it, but there's a kind of I think a, um, for me a risk of a sort of libertarianism that comes out of this idea of like my community. And I think what um, I agree that if, if by the government is not coming to help, you mean you know the Democrats are not coming to help. Certainly, no one on the right is coming to help. So I think we could all agree on that. But I think the idea that well, for large-scale transformation, we might need you know a government that is going to help. And what what would that look like? What's the pathway? And I think um, one thing I'm hearing from you know urban agriculture around the the world really is is maybe it's maybe these sort of small-scale community-scale interventions um, could be the basis, the the bottom-up approach. And maybe it's it's linking together. So it's not so much just my community, but it's linking up with the next town over the next town and sharing more and more using the decentralized tools of the internet, you know, being able to teach people about physical things, but via the internet, like you do, like Melissa does. Uh, and, and I think that's like, um, an inspiring take, which I think, you know, it could sort of the knife, it could fall either way, right. It could go toward a sort of homesteader in the pejorative sense of, I'm just going to protect me and mine, or it can go outward. Um, which I take it as how you, you are viewing your work, which is again, very inspiring. But uh, I just, I just want to note that, 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 trend because I feel like this has come up in a couple of our discussions where we're, 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 you know, anxious about the failures of top down, but I want to be wary that it doesn't become just a lot of fighting um, from individuals over the last few viable corn kernels, you know, in 30 years and this sort of Octavia Butler dystopian version of our food system, um, which we've all seen, you know, now on, now it's like on Netflix, right? It's been metabolized into just popular culture. It's no longer the realm of niche, you know, literary elites to say like, oh, we're all going to die horribly as cannibals. (laughs) <laughs> well, so let me let, let me be very clear here. I'm not a libertarian. I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. I'm not a communist. I'm not a socialist. I'm not any of those. I'm in the middle. I'm in the middle sitting here looking at a system that is broken. And what our job becomes is figuring out on a neighborhood community level how to fix it. I'm a big proponent of if everybody's boat is floating higher— we're better off. I started my first business when I was 15 years old. I'm a capitalist. And what I'm very clear about is that competition is killing the planet. 
this notion of competition and competing collab because when you look at nature, nature doesn't do competition. Nature does collaboration. What we have to figure out with the Republicans, with the Democrats, with the Soviets, with the Chinese, with the Indians, with the United States, with all of these, what we have to figure out is how can we cooperate and collaborate to fix this problem together? That's the only way it's going to get fixed. Well, that that sounds like socialism to me, which works. You may not use the word, but that's what you're talking about, which is great. That's what we're that's what we're here for. So, uh, in any event, it's great, Greg. It's really great to talk to you. Um, oh my gosh, how much fun was it talking to you three? We could talk more. Yeah, thank you, know. you so much. <laughs> Come to New York at some point, maybe. If yeah. you want. <laughs> I don't know. Climate wise, I know it's like more carbon, but um, right. There's a good possibility around that. Good. 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 And if we, uh, maybe, maybe you can give us a tour if we're ever out your way. Absolutely. Bring it on. Absolutely. My brother lives in Sedona, which is like close-ish, uh, maybe. Yes, it is. I'll do a detour. There you go. Well, actually, most of the time you have to come through Phoenix to get to Sedona. Any final thoughts? And Greg, you can have the last word. Of course, please tell us how to find you. What to? What do you uh, want listeners to to do? How, how do you want them to act? Um, but any, any final thoughts from us before we turn it back over to Greg? No, just thanks. Yeah, thank you. Um, and just a reminder, we are speaking to Greg Peterson from um, The Urban Farm. So you could totally check out, and Greg, you're going to say this as well, but just um, The Urban Farm and also uh, your podcast, which is The Urban Farm Podcast. I just wanted to remind everybody that we are talking to Greg Peterson, and thank you so much for speaking with us. Yeah, I really enjoyed it and uh, feel very inspired by your insights. So thank you. And I was inspired talking to all three of you. So thank you. So urbanfarm.org is my website. Urbanfarmpodcast.com is where you can find our podcast. There's over 650 episodes. And I've had some amazing people on the podcast, um, all the way from Backyard Gardeners to uh, the co-founder of Permaculture. I had him on the podcast a while back. So, And I have a freebie if anybody's interested on figuring out how to water your garden. If you go to urbanfarmwater.com, I have a free um, series of uh, videos on how to, how to most effectively water your garden. That's urbanfarmwater.com. Thanks to our brilliant guests. Fields theme music is by Sam Tyndall. Our amazing producing engineer at Heritage Radio is Liam Werner. Fields is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio and at Fields Podcast. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.